Roxo Media House. Welcome back to Fortitude Guys. J.W. Wilson with a special guest today, Dr. Paul Thornton. This episode brought to you by Captex Bank, our friends over there, one of the only two local banks in Fort Worth. Thank you, Mike Thomas. I know you're out there watching right now, probably late at night. We appreciate you. Back to this man to my left, Dr. Paul Thornton is the medical director of endocrine and diabetes programs at Cook Children's Hospital, uh, which we'll get into that for the majority of this discussion today. Dr. Dr. Thornton, thank you for being here, first off. We're, we're honored to have you in our presence. Uh, before we get to that, though, it says here you grew up in some place called Dublin. Is that Dublin, Texas? Yeah, where they make Dr. Pepper. Yes, is that not that's not accurate, I don't think, is it? Uh, it's, it's like halfway there. I okay. grew up in Dublin, Ireland. Okay. Uh, country of the number one rugby world team, the number one rugby team in the world. Very nice. Uh, but uh, yes, I grew up there. My parents were both from Dublin, so I'm what they call a Jackine. Okay. Um, and I went to school there, went to university there, started my medical training. Uh, it's a fun place to go. And if you get a chance to go visit Ireland, you should do it. Okay. I love that. When did you know in your life, I know it's early on, that you wanted to be in the, in the medical profession? I was one of those people that it was the only thing I ever wanted to do. And boy, am I lucky I got to do it because I would have been so unhappy otherwise. <laughs> but enough. like, as long as I can remember, 10, 11, 12, mm -hmm. I knew I wanted to be a doctor. And I think a lot of it had to do with, I guess, my mentor in getting me there, which was our family practitioner. Right. Um, a guy called Dr. Brendan DC. And he, the, he just inspired me and that made it all I wanted to do. And, you know, I was not the best in my class and I had to work very hard to get into med school. Mm -hmm. But boy, was it worth it in the end. Yes, sir. We're grateful you did. And for what it's worth, I wasn't the best in my class either. So and look, here we are. Yeah, here we are. On TV. So from Dublin, <laughs> from Dublin, you went to London to train, part of your training. From London, after that, you went to Children's Hospital in Philadelphia, where you completed your residency, your fellowship in pediatric endocrinology. Uh, get that right? Yeah. How was your time in Philly? I loved it. I mean, I hate to tell you this, guys, but I am a diehard Eagles fan. Devastated with that call last week. I figured you would be. I was going to ask. Now, you. of course, we've just dated the timing of this. We, podcast. That's okay. That's okay. It won't. It won't sit in the coffers for too long. I yeah, promise. But a little hand on your back. Come on, guys. Yes, yes. And like if we lost because we lost to a better team, I'd be. I'd be fine. <laughs> still, still fighting that battle. Are still we? fighting that. That's problem, okay. Yeah. From Philadelphia, you went back to Ireland from '96 to '99, where you ran the National Center for Inherited uh, Metabolic Diseases. Uh, which is significant in itself. Describe quickly what that what that means or how, what that was like. Yeah, so, you know, I'm one of those endocrinologists who's sort of trained in metabolic disease uh, mm -hmm. and endocrinology, and a position opened up in Ireland. And, you know, when you train in Ireland, your goal for most people is to get back to Ireland and to be a consultant in the hospital system there. And so this opportunity opportunity came up, and it turns out that, uh, the job I got was um, as a, com a combination of a metabolic physician and an endocrinologist. Right. And in Ireland, there was only one hospital that looked after all the metabolic patients in the country, including the adults. Um, so that was very exciting. And one of my big achievements when I was there, albeit for three years, was to get a recognition that children become adults and children with metabolic disease become adults mm -hmm. and they need care as adults. So we got an adult program going 
while we were there and we got that recognition. And Wonderful. you know, this is a, a big thing in, in pediatrics is that there are certain things that we do better because they're more pediatric, but those kids grow up and we need to transition them to adult carers. Yes, yes sir. Well, so those who are listening and wondering right now, what is endocrinology? It's basically the study of hormones. Um, so, you know, our, our bodies are finely tuned machines. And the reason for that is that we have hormones that control everything. Um, for example, the thyroid is controlled by the pituitary gland. And when, you're, when your body doesn't make enough thyroid hormone, your pituitary gland sends a message say, hey, make some more hormone. Then when it makes enough, it sends a message back saying, I'm making enough. And so everything is kept nicely in balance. And endocrinology is the study of hormones. And hormones are basically compounds in the body that travel from one part to another and then perform their function there. So, for example, insulin is secreted by the pancreas, but it goes to all the cells in the body to increase uh, glucose uptake into those cells. Yes, indeed. Very good. Thank you. For And in, after you went back to Ireland for the, for your visit, your short three-year visit, you went back to Philadelphia. I guess you loved it so much. Yeah. As the clinical director of the Con- Congenital Hyperinsulinism Center, which we'll talk about here in a second, that spurred, that lasted for a few years. And then in 2003, you moved here to Fort Worth, yes. where, you, where you still sit today uh, at Cook Children's Hospital, one of our fav- favorite places in I'm, town. I'm going to have to interrupt you here now because yes, you said that wrong twice. Okay, tell me. And if I don't correct you, I'm going to be in real trouble. Okay. It's Cook Children's Medical Center. Medical Center. Okay, I can uh, do that. Cook Children's Medical Center. I won't exactly. make that mistake again. Okay. And um, one of the things that, or many of the things you do, you deal with endocrinology. Obviously, that's why we're here today. But specifically, pediatric endocrinology, you're dealing with children that have these these hormone issues, as you put it earlier, correct? Yes. And, you know, in um, in different countries, the term pediatric is used differently. So, for example, where I trained in Ireland, we only saw kids up to 14, but here we see them up to 18. And sometimes um, if we feel that the child will benefit as a young adult from staying for a year or two, we'll see them a little bit longer. Very good. And that really helps us transition them over, especially kids with chronic diseases. And, mm-hmm. you know, as I'm sure we'll talk about, children with diabetes often struggle more during their adolescent years. And so sometimes it takes a couple of extra years to get them ready to transition to adulthood. Fair enough. Those of you who have kids probably understand that the transition of adolescence to adulthood Mm -hmm. can be tricky. Never mind with a chronic disease. It's tricky for us even in adulthood too. So yes. (laughs) Well, let's start from the ground floor if you don't mind. Tell us what diet, what is diabetes? Diabetes is a condition basically where um, the body doesn't have enough insulin to do its functions. And so you end up getting higher blood sugars. Now, people think of diabetes as being two types of diabetes, type 1 or type 2 diabetes. But it Mm -hmm. turns out there's probably about 15 or 16 different types of diabetes. Um, But traditionally, people think about type 1 diabetes being an autoimmune disease where our body's own uh, immune response damages the beta cells, which are the cells that make insulin in the pancreas. Mm -hmm. And as a result, we don't have enough cells making insulin and so we have insulin deficiency and then in the acute phase that causes a rapid rise in the blood sugar the kids start to become dehydrated they start losing weight uh, and eventually you can become very sick before the diagnosis is made now type 2 diabetes on the other hand is a whole different uh, 
kettle of fish. And what happens there is that usually as a result of increasing obesity, uh, insulin resistance develops. So your pancreas is able to make insulin, but it's just not an a- an able to make enough. And one of the funny things that we see in, in children is that when our families come in, the first thing they ask us is, do I have type 1 or type 2 diabetes? And we'll do some testing and using clinical acumen, we can pretty accurately determine which one people have. And, you know, every so often, and unfortunately, uh, more often than we would like to see now, we're seeing a lot more type 2 diabetes. And it's interesting to us that the kids all think having type 2 diabetes is better than type 1 diabetes. But the sad reality is, is that if you are uh, have type 2 diabetes in childhood, that is a very serious long-term disease. Yes, sir. And they have a way worse outcome than our kids with type 1. Mm-hmm. But yet the kids with type 1 seem to be the worst because they have to take insulin and they have to right. check their blood sugar four to six times a day and take four to six shots and count their carbs and do all these terrible mm-hmm. things. And the type 2 patients just take a tablet and they're fine. And of course, that's not true at all. Fair. What's so, the ratio, Dr. Paul, from type 1 to type 2? Yeah, we're currently seeing... Um, about five to one ratio for every five kids with type one, we're seeing one or two with type two. It used to be 10 or 20 to one. Uh, now it's down four or five to one. I mean, you know, in Cook Children's, we have about 2,000 children with type one diabetes and we're up to three or 400 children now with type two diabetes. So that suggests that type one is is rising more quickly or type two is type is two. Type 2 is rising more quickly. Okay. So as the rate of obesity increases in the pediatric population, I mean, we're now seeing 25 to 30% of our kids significantly overweight. And that's the main driver of the cause of type 2 diabetes. So this, and let's talk about type 1 for just a second here. Uh, the silly question you could hear, you probably hear a lot all the time is, did I get it because I ate too much candy? Did I get it because of my diet? What causes someone to get type 1 diabetes? Yeah, we hear that all the time. And, you know, a lot of families are feeling guilty that maybe they could have had a healthier food diet for their kids and they would have prevented this. But the reality is that indeed is not the case. Type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease, uh, meaning that our bodies attack the cells in the pancreas that make insulin. And we don't fully understood understand why that reaction is triggered. You know, people have talked about exposure to a viral illness, maybe exposure to, you know, modern life and the chemicals that we see somehow triggers this overactivity of the immune response. And then our, our body, in essence, harms itself. Um, and sadly, it seems that we seem to be see, seeing more of that. So, you know, why is that? You know, there was... There certainly was a spike of type 1 diabetes uh, after we got hit by COVID. But, you know, we don't know what the cause of that is. So what we do know is that something triggers an autoimmune response Mm -hmm. that causes our own cells that fight infection to attack the beta cells. And from there, it's an inevitable progression to diabetes. And, you know, the thing that's interesting is that now we can look at children and measure some of the markers in their blood, like the islet cell antibodies or the GAD65 antibodies that tell us if that process is starting. Mm -hmm. And this is some of the exciting stuff. We'll probably talk about it later is that now we have drugs that can stop that immune reaction and hopefully prevent the onset of diabetes, but you have to catch it at the right time. Sure. 
just to be clear, Dr. Paul, there's no, nothing you can do necessarily. Obviously, good lifestyle, good habits, good exercise is a, is a pinnacle of life that we don't follow all that well. But there's nothing you can really do to keep you from getting type 1 diabetes, correct? No, it's not. It's not because of a lifestyle habit. It's not because you ate too much candy, you mm-hmm. ate too much sugar. It's not because you didn't exercise enough. All those things are good for, you know, exercising, healthy food diet, for cardiovascular health. Health, but it doesn't prevent diabetes. Would it be considered now, it genetic? Could, yes, there are certainly risk factors that are genetic. So mm-hmm. some people are more prone to develop autoimmune disease than others. Now, those healthy lifestyles can help prevent type 2 diabetes. So if we can prevent obesity and excessive weight gain, um, which then triggers you know hypertension or high blood pressure, mm-hmm. all of those things, those healthy lifestyles... That's how we prevent type 2 diabetes. Sure. And we, we you, you touched on this earlier on, what causes type 2. It's it's probably bad diet, obesity, as you, as you yeah. declared. So if everyone were suddenly to go to a healthy lifestyle, get suddenly fit, would, would that essentially eradicate type 2 diabetes in a sense? Certainly in childhood it would. Um, you know, eventually as you get older and older, 70, 80, 90 years of age, our organs start to give up. And so type 2 diabetes can occur there. Mm-hmm. But type 2 diabetes in childhood is specifically because of obesity. And we have the power to prevent that. You're basically wearing out your your pancreas because you're needing so much insulin all the time. That's right. Very good. There's only so much you can make in a day. Yes, sir. Okay, so some of the, some of the treatments. Let's talk about symptoms real quick. How would somebody know if they have a symptom of diabetes, if we need to stick to one type 1 or type 2, but type 1 specifically? What are the symptoms of type 1? Yeah, I mean, and this is very important for everyone out there to know. So probably the first thing that you start to notice, and most people notice this as they look back at the last six weeks rather than right at the beginning. But you start to notice that you're having increased thirst, that you're starting to be thirsty a little bit more, mm-hmm. um, that drinking water just doesn't seem to do it anymore. So you have to start drinking a lot of water. You start noticing that you might be peeing a little bit more. You might have to get up out of bed at night to urinate. Um, and that some kids are notice that they're eating less because they're drinking so much water to keep up. And of course, mm-hmm. if you're drinking high sugar fluids as opposed to water, that just makes everything worse because that mm-hmm. causes your blood sugar to go higher, which makes you thirstier, etc. Mm-hmm. The next big thing that people notice is weight loss. So they'll have unexplained weight loss. Um, it'll start, you know, mild, but very quickly you start losing one, two, three pounds a day. And this is because your blood sugar is so high, you're drinking so much water, all that sugar goes down the toilet and that's calories. Mm-hmm. So you're you're losing calories, you start to lose weight. You're starving yourself in yeah. some sense. So even though your blood is full of sugar, it can't get into the cells. So the cells are, cells are starved. Mm-hmm. So what starts happening is the cells start giving the body a message, I'm starved, I need fuel. So they start breaking down your fat stores as if you were in, on a diet and not eating enough. Mm-hmm. So you start losing weight and then... That's sort of the end of the simple, easy stuff where you're not in really danger. But what starts happening next is as you start to break down more and more your fat stores, these things called ketone bodies start to rise. And this is a form of acid in your blood. And that causes you then to start to breathe a little faster because your body thinks, I've got acid in my blood. I need to breathe it out. And now you're into 
getting close to having to come into an ICU situation because mm. you're going into what's called diabetic ketoacidosis, where you have so little insulin that all your fat is being converted into ketones. That's an acid. Um, your blood sugar is getting higher and higher. You get into this vicious cycle of severe dehydration, and then you start to drop your blood pressure. And that's what we see kids coming into the emergency room, you know, deep breathing, unresponsive, you know, parents found them lying in the bed. They couldn't wake them up. And that's really the most dangerous situation. And in most of those cases, you just like you just mentioned, is immediate insulin, is that the saving? Uh, yes. Sk- uh, sk- at, at that point in time, you, you need what we call in medicine, the ABCs. You got to start off with the airway breathing circulation. Um, but that's where you have got to recognize that this is new onset diabetes. Mm-hmm. And it's easy. A, a simple blood test will show the blood sugar a thousand. You What's a normal blood sugar for a human? It's 70 to 110. Okay. Um, so, you know, it's obvious by the story of excessive pee and drinking, weight loss, kid comes in like that. So yes, you need to get fluids in to mm-hmm. rehydrate them, insulin to switch off ketosis. Um, and then start the whole process of recovery. But the thing that's most important for families out there to know is that most of the time you can notice these subtle signs like excessive urination, excessive drinking, and it's a simple test. You go to your doctor, you say, I noticed my child is drinking too much. You know, they never, they never seem to be able to resolve their thirst. Let's just check a blood sugar. Finger prick in the doctor's office. Uh, avoid that, you know, downhill spiral that ends up in the intensive care. Yes, indeed. Before we talk about insulin, are there any symptoms of type 2 diabetes besides obviously an an obese child or any person you can tell, but any symptoms other than the things you mentioned, not not for type 1, but for type 2? Yeah, so one of the other things that people will notice is that they'll see that the skin on their neck gets a little darker. Mm -hmm. It's what we call acanthosis nigricans, and it starts on your neck and it spreads up and down. Um, the skin can sometimes get thickened and look like almost like elephant skin where you've got those like wrinkles set into the skin. It happens on your arms and on your knuckles as well. And so if you have a child who's gaining excessive weight and they're getting that darkness on their skin, that's an early sign of impending type 2 diabetes. And actually, if you take them to see your doctor, they can do a test um, either a random blood sugar or a hemoglobin A1C mm-hmm. and let you know if you're on that early stage of development because that's when this disease, type 2 diabetes, is reversible. Yes, sir. And, you know, that's the thing is all our families with type 1 diabetes say, gosh, if only we could have done something to reverse this. Mm-hmm. But yet here we are, and now 20 to 25% of our children are having type 2 diabetes and, you know, we need to put that same effort in to prevent that and reverse it when we have the warning sure. signs. Fair to say there should be a more universal testing for this across the board versus just when you get to that point where you know something's wrong. Yeah, that- I think certainly for type 2 diabetes, the warning signs of excessive weight gain are very easy to see. Yes. And, you know, it's hard for me as a parent to be told my child is gaining too much weight. Um but we've got to understand that this could lead to problems and not just when they're going to be 40 and 50 and have right. high cholesterol and high blood pressure. But right now it's a risk for diabetes. Yes. Okay. Thank you for that. Now, insulin. What is insulin and why is it so important to the human existence? Right. So insulin is one of those hormones we talked about up front um, that's made in the pancreas. And without it, we cannot survive. Um, it 
it, what it, insulin does is it allows sugar or glucose to be transported into the cells. And glucose is the most important fuel we have for producing energy. Um, there are other fuels we can use like lactate and ketone bodies. But as a general rule, they're not available all the time unless we um, get into a situation where we're not eating. So insulin is critically important for allowing each cell to be able to make the energy it needs to do its function. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, before 1921, when we discovered insulin, um, we knew that people had diabetes. Um, and the, the, the it was a death sentence. Uh, you got diabetes, and if, if you were lucky, um, you lived six more months. Mm-hmm. And that six months was only because you exercised every day, you didn't eat any carbohydrates, and you drank water. Mm-hmm. And all you did was prolong the inevitable death from insulin deficiency. And so 100 years later, here we are, and we've got designer insulins that uh, allow our children with diabetes to have a much more, I wouldn't say completely easy lifestyle, but compared to the bad old days, sure. it's a big difference. You mentioned a little while ago the high blood sugar and the, and the problems with that, and it ultimately could lead to your death, and it will if not treated. Uh, what are the? In, in, in and from what you said, insulin is the is the way to bring that low, that high blood sugar down to the regular rates. Tell us about a low blood sugar and what that's like. Yeah, low blood sugar um, is not just simply the opposite of high blood sugar. This is a whole new set of problems on its own. So when your blood sugar drops low especially when you start getting down below 50, then you're not having enough fuel for your brain. And that causes you to become disoriented, confused. Um, it stops your brain from making good decisions. It starts off like you're a little bit drunk where you start making bad decisions because you're not mm-hmm. thinking through it straight. Um, and then you become irritable, cranky. You can get confused. You can become lethargic. And if it keeps dropping and stays low, then you can start having seizures and you can die from a low blood sugar. How common is, is, is a low blood sugar death? It, How, it's rare, thanks rare. be to God, because it mm-hmm. should never happen. But sadly, it does happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, this is why we have to really carefully balance the risk of a low blood sugar today from giving too much insulin versus the risk of the long-term side effects and complications from diabetes. And so one of the things our our new onset parents often struggle with is the idea that, well, okay, you know, my child could have a serious problem with a low blood sugar and a seizure today, Mm -hmm. so I'll run them a little sweeter to try and stop that. But that generates long-term problems. So we've got to balance the risks of low blood sugars um, versus chronic high blood sugars and that's why all these new modern insulins, you know, where we have very short acting, intermediate acting, long acting insulins allow mm. us to have the tools to prevent the hypoglycemia while still preventing the hyperglycemia. Some people have asked, um, I mean, I've heard these stories over the years. If you, if a, a regular person, someone without diabetes gets up in the morning, doesn't eat a meal or breakfast, goes and works, does a strenuous workout, they have a low blood sugar, a natural one, I would, I would, I would call it which we all have been there at some level, I think, how much more severe and what does it feel like to have a low blood sugar? Can you describe what the what it might feel like to have that? Well, luckily for me, I don't have diabetes, nor do I have hyperinsulinism. Um, so, um, you know, what our families tell us is that they start off with the warning signs of a low blood sugar, which is 
that you start to feel a little shaky. Um, you might start to feel hungry. Um, and this is actually the body sending out protective messages. So the hormones that a low blood sugar triggers uh, teach the brain to, to go food seeking. So it makes you hungry and then you want to eat and then you eat and mm. you can correct the low blood sugar. So there are some symptoms that we call in the profession ne neurogenic symptoms, meaning symptoms that the body has that send messages to the brain to say, my blood sugar is falling. I need to do something to stop it falling. And those symptoms and those levels of blood sugar don't cause any harm whatsoever, mm -hmm. but that's designed to prevent you from getting into the really severe symptoms that we just talked about earlier, which is where your brain doesn't have enough sugar to function. So that's why we call it mild hypoglycemia and severe mm -hmm. hypoglycemia. And the symptoms of mild hypoglycemia are the things that I could notice in you, where if you became pale, sweaty, shaky, you know, maybe a little bit cranky, um, those sort of symptoms, um, someone else can recognize and go and help you and say, mm -hmm. you feeling okay? Do I need to get you, you know, uh, a glass of milk, some apple juice um, to help you get your blood sugar up quickly? Um, when you get into the symptoms where your brain is not functioning well, that's where you might actually need some serious help, like someone else to give you a shot of glucagon as a rescue to bring your blood sugar up because you can't help yourself anymore. You could, you'd be so confused potentially yeah. that you wouldn't even know to drink, to take some Correct. sugar to get there. Okay. Yeah. Uh, treatments for, uh, for low blood sugar. We talk about uh, getting something with sugar to bring your blood sugar up, but generally speaking for type one, and we'll talk about type two, what are the, what are the, the general treatments for type one diabetes? Yeah. Typically we would say that if your blood sugar is falling but not yet low, just take a small amount of carbohydrates so you don't rebound up, mm -hmm. uh, maybe 5, 10 grams of carbohydrates. When your blood sugar gets down into the range where you're having symptoms, you need to take 15 grams of carbohydrates and then recheck mm -hmm. your blood sugar in 15 minutes to make sure it's coming up. So 15 grams of carbohydrate might be like, um, you know, drinking a glass of milk, some mm -hmm. apple juice, um, you know, a lot of people, um, especially the young adults who don't want to be carrying around, you know, juice in their backpack all day long, would use glucose tablets. Mm -hmm. um, some people use uh, glucose gel, which you can either get specific glucose gel things for this specific thing, or people use um, cake icing, icing, cake icing sugar. Um, all of these things are basically a handy way to carry carbohydrates that are not going to go off or spill in your backpack. If we could, and then treatments for low blood sugar. What about treatments for type one diabetes? How does one who has type one diabetes, it sounds like they need to be on insulin for, for forever. I, th I think that's the correct answer. I'm asking yeah, you, but it is the correct it's answer. a lifelong uh, uh, thing you're going to deal with, but what kind of treatments do these people have to endure for the rest of their life? Yeah. So um, now we're talking about the general treatment of type one diabetes and basically you know, the general principles are that you need to take insulin. Um, you need to take insulin whenever you eat and you need to take insulin whenever your blood sugar is high. So number one treatment is insulin. The second thing is you have to be aware of what you're eating. So if you eat a piece of meat, for example, it's primarily all protein, a little bit of fat, that's not really going to change your blood sugar a lot. It'll go up a little bit, but not a lot. Whereas if you were to sit down and drink a can of Coke, your blood sugar is going to shoot up high. Mm -hmm. Um, so we have to teach people how to figure out how much carbohydrates is in the food that they're eating, which are the foods that have good carbohydrates and which are the foods that are bad carbohydrates. 
Because if your food looks like a vegetable when you're, when you're eating it, it's generally got much lower carbohydrate and it's not going to swing your blood sugar around as much as if it looks like a uh, red can of Coke. Um, so, so kids with diabetes have to think about what they're eating. It doesn't mean that they can't eat any specific type of food. It just means they have to eat that food the right way, mm-hmm. give the right amount of insulin to deal with it. And then, of course, they have to check their blood sugar so they know how much insulin to give. And then we can, of course, start talking about all the different ways we can give insulin. We can give insulin with needles and syringes, with pen-like devices. You know, of course, the way now is insulin pump therapy. Um, And, you know, checking blood sugars, we can check blood sugars by pricking our fingers. But now we've got what's called continuous glucose sensing, where you put a device on your arm or your leg or your abdomen and it can record your blood sugar by measuring what the sugar levels in your interstitial fluid are. So, you know, compared to 25 years ago when I started training, we had three types of insulin. Um, you took two, three doses of insulin a day. You had to eat the same amount of food every time. Mm-hmm. There was, it was rigid. There was, it was an unforgiving disease. Now we can tailor each individual child or young adult's program to fit into their lifestyle and make the diabetes fit your lifestyle. You no longer have to change your lifestyle for the diabetes. So technology and research has obviously helped. Um, We'll talk about research here in a little bit. Um, Complications of type one and type two, if you could speak to that for a brief moment. Yeah. So we've sort of hit on that a little bit earlier, talking about the short-term complications of low blood sugar problems. But really what most people think about is the long-term complications. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we talk to our kids about this, I can just see their eyes. They go, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, I think it's important. You don't have a s- puppet or something in the in the room with the kid? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, it's tough because we have to understand what the long-term complications of diabetes are because diabetes is a disease that needs to be respected because it will kill you if you don't respect it. Um, and so, you know, the major complications are um, what we call vascular disease. So, uh, problems with your blood vessels that lead to heart disease. So these, uh, eventually you have a higher incidence of high cholesterol, hypertension, and then you're at risk of heart attacks. Um, blood vessel disease going into your legs means that you might end up with poor circulation into your legs, Mm -hmm. which means that if you get an injury or a wound to your leg, it might not heal. And that can lead to gangrene and loss of toes and feet and legs. And, you know, we've all probably heard of some distant relative we have who had like type 2 diabetes and lost their leg. And we don't want that for our children. Um, You know, other problems are damage to the kidneys. Mm -hmm. And I should say that all of these things take 10 to 15 to 20 years of poor diabetes control. So this is not a given. Good control can prevent complications of diabetes. But in order to be motivated to have good control, our families and the children and the young adults need to understand the consequences of poor control. And so we've talked about the kidneys. The last thing, of course, is eye damage. Mm -hmm. And so it can damage the retina in the eye, which can cause you to have problems with your vision. So, you know, one of the things we do for our kids is we give them a nice chart where we show, okay, you know, if you have this degree of control, it could possibly take 10 or 20 years for you to get complications of diabetes. But if you get much better, 
it could take 30 to 50 years. And if you can keep your A1C, which is a measure we use to tell us what the average blood sugar looks like, if you can get that close to the normal range, which is less than 6.6, then you can really prevent those long-term complications. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've learned. You know, in 1921, when we discovered insulin, we thought we'd cure diabetes. You know, now, you know, we talk about the cure for diabetes all the time. Well, in 1921, when Banting and Best and McLeod discovered insulin, they were sure they had cured diabetes. They mm-hmm. won Nobel Prizes for curing diabetes. And then 10 years later, we discovered diabetes complications. Mm-hmm. And that set a whole new standard for how we need to treat. So what I would say to the young people out there who have diabetes is, is that these things sound terrible, and they are, but they are all preventable. And you know, when we work together as a team we can prevent these complications. Beautiful. As a pediatric endocrinologist, that term just tells everybody that you deal with children. I, I've read this about you, Dr. Thornton, that you deal with, I mean, brand new babies at some, at some level. Yeah. How do you, how does, how do you deal with a brand new child that's hyper and the term hyperinsulinism is going to come up here in a second, but basically there's a part of their pancreas that is uh, producing too much insulin Right. And the procedure, and I'm speaking for you, forgive me, but I would love to know your thoughts on this, but your procedure you're doing on, on brand new babies to, to remove this part of the pancreas that's making too much insulin, and they become a normal uh, diabetic or potentially not based on the, the treatment you're providing for them, correct? Right. So, you know, what we're talking about here is that there are some forms of diabetes that occur because you lose your pancreas, either through trauma involved in some sort of an accident or because the doctors remove it because it's causing a problem. So everyone has heard about adults, you know, with pancreatic cancer having to have their pancreas removed and they get diabetes. Well, there are diseases that affect children where their body has what we call the opposite of diabetes. They make too much insulin. And so instead of the problem being high blood sugars all the time, the problem is low blood sugars all the time. Mm -hmm. And just like we talked about earlier on, when a child with diabetes takes too much insulin and gets a low blood sugar reaction, it's dangerous. So too is this condition in these newborn babies. So these are babies who present with low blood sugars all the time. The problem is that their pancreas makes too much insulin. And so our job in this area is to find out what part of the pancreas makes too much insulin. And in Cook Children's, we have a special research protocol where we use this drug called 18-fluorodopa, and we inject it into the babies, and then we put them into a PET scanner, and we can look at the pancreas, and we can see which part is making too much insulin. And so in the old days, when children had this disease, we just took almost the whole of the pancreas out, and they all got diabetes. Mm -hmm. So you swapped one terrible disease for another terrible disease. But now... We can find that part of the pancreas, take it out and remove it and cure the patient without the risk of diabetes. So, you know, we talked earlier about how there are 14 or 15 types of diabetes. Well, one of them is post-surgical diabetes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now that's something that we're seeing far less of because of these new innovations that we can use. How often are you seeing these young, young babies uh, with this hyperinsulinism? Yeah, this is a rare disease. We're talking about 1 in 25 to 1 in 50,000 babies are born with right. it. And about half of them end up needing uh, pancreatic surgery. So, you know, in the United States with 4 million births a year, just under now, um, we're talking about 120 babies a year. And they come from all over the United States to us here in Fort Worth for our program at wow. Cook Children's. 
Um, now let's talk a little about research. You're involved in a lot of this yourself. Um, what what kind of research are you involved with, and what's happening in the in the research field of for diabetes? Yeah. So um, currently in diabetes, you know, the big thing is how do we cure diabetes? Like I said, we thought we had it figured out in 1921. Uh, we learned we didn't. And so now, 100 years later, huge amounts of money are being invested in curing type 1 diabetes. Um, and there are partners all over the world working on this. Um, right now, we think about curing diabetes in, in really two or three ways. One is, can we get the technology leveraged to essentially allow someone who has diabetes to live a completely normal life and really not have to do much other than manage a little technology. So this is what we talk about, closed-loop pump systems where you have a device like a, a continuous glucose sensor that tells you what your blood sugar is, you know, anywhere from every one minute to every five minutes. It is able to communicate to an insulin pump that then decides that your body needs more or less insulin. So it, in, it gives you a higher or a lower dose. Mm -hmm. And then you get this immediate feedback because your blood sugar changes. And then the pump decides in the next one to five minutes how much I'm going to give. So the idea is that we could do a technological cure for diabetes in the sense that the patient would still have to be aware of what they're doing. They'd have to wear the equipment, but they'd be able to get on with their daily life and not really have to think about it too much. So that's good, but it's not the holy grail. The holy grail is to totally cure diabetes. And so right now, people are focused on ways to give back islets. So we've talked a little bit earlier about how the autoimmune process damages our own beta cells in the islets. And so, you know, could we make beta cells that would then we could put back into the body? And can we do that in a way that prevents our body from attacking them again? And so that's a whole nother area that we're looking at now is uh, islet cell transplant, uh, artificial islets, artificial beta cells. How do we wrap them and get them into the body so that our body's immune system don't fight them? You know, do we use our own tissue? Like, for example, do we harvest our own stem cells and then generate those to become islets so that our body doesn't reject them? So that's another approach to curing diabetes. And then the last approach really is the concept of could we identify those people who are going to develop diabetes next year mm -hmm. and then stop the process before it damages. And that's very exciting because we've got our first drug has just become FDA approved to do this very thing. So now if you have diabetes and you've got kids or uh, one of your children has it and they've got other siblings, we know there's a 5% chance that they will develop diabetes sometime between now and the age of 40. Mm -hmm. And so if we can go out and identify, is it likely that you're going to get diabetes in the next year, then there are drugs that we can now give that will quieten down that immune uh, attack on your body and hopefully prevent at least for three to five years, the current technology looks like, we can prevent the onset of diabetes, but eventually we hope to be able to completely prevent it. So, you know, people have seen the ads on TV, they've heard the news, they're calling our clinic. It's important to remember that currently our technology allows us to delay the onset, not completely prevent, but hopefully every three or five years that we buy, 
the science will be better, the drugs will be better, right. and eventually we'll be able to prevent completely. I imagine you get asked this question with every patient you see, but when will you see a cure? When do you think, what do you tell people when they ask you that? Because it seems like all the research, we're all heading that direction. Uh-huh. One day in this world, there will be a cure. I know we're all wanting that. Right. What, uh, what do you tell people? Interestingly, I've been telling them the same thing for the last 20 years, which is five years. And so we've been wrong yes. <laughs> up till now. Um, I think we're actually getting closer. Um, uh, we, you know, we're able to make beta cells. We're able to dampen down the immune response. So with right now, I think we're at a point where the technology will allow all our children and young adults who have diabetes already mm-hmm. to be able to stay healthy and well so that when that cure comes, they're ready for it and we can do it. Um, and I think realistically we're probably still five to 10 years where we can start talking about a significant cure without a bad burden of disease. For example, right now I can cure diabetes by doing an islet cell transplant from a cadaver. So someone dies, donates their pancreas to science, we take out their islets and we put them back into a person. But now I have to immune, I have to dampen down their immune response. So we've Mm -hmm. just switched you from having diabetes into now having uh, being immune compromised because I've had to dampen down your immune response. Sure. So so the people who have that would say, yeah, I'm cured, but my life isn't perfect. Mm-hmm. So we have a long way to go yet, but we're getting so close. Nice. Do you think it is, is it, the, is the cure? It's not like once one day they just say, oh, we've discovered something. It's more like several different therapies, yeah. medicines have all come into conjunction with one another to relieve the the burden of diabetes, but it'll likely be at the expense of another, something of that nature? I'm not so sure it's at the expense of another, but I think it's exactly like you described. There are going to be many little steps. You know, for example, how do we develop a container that we get, if we can make these islets, Mm -hmm. that we put them in so the body can't fight Mm -hmm. against those islets. So we're already there with with those components. How do we make islets uh, enough to be able to give to everyone with diabetes. So there's going to be many little steps. It's not going to be suddenly one day there's a cure for diabetes. Dr. Thornton can go play golf all the time now. That's not going to happen. It's steady little steps. And we are seeing those combination of steps happening right now. So this is a very exciting time. Very good. You mentioned islet cell transplants, uh-huh. transplanting the cells into the pancreas that produce insulin that type ones have lost. How, how common is this? Um, so I'm not sure how many we're doing a year now, but um, this is something that's been around for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is, is that there aren't enough uh, people who are donating their pancreas. It takes the pancreas of two to three people to get enough islets for one person. And um, I think... Uh, the statistics on the number of people with type 1 diabetes is so huge that it's just, right now, it's not practical. What we have to do is learn to make um, cells that make insulin, so make beta cells. And that's where all the stem cell work is coming from. Um, That's where um, these modern technologies are going, uh, so that we're not reliant on cadaver or donor pancreas. You mentioned earlier in the interview about COVID causing, uh, you know, I think it was a spike in type one. 
Can you talk to that just briefly, what, what that, just the virus, it triggered the, an attack yeah, on the body more or less? We haven't really figured out completely why this has happened. What we've noticed is that there was a spike in the increase of frequency of, of type 1 diabetes during COVID. Now, you know, some people have said, well, that's because a lot of kids became overweight because they were, you know, in their house, they had nothing to do, no exercise, no mm -hmm. friends, no running around. So yes, there was a there was a definite increase in obesity and type two diabetes, but there was also a spike in type one. Um, so the presumption is that somehow or other this new infection triggered an overwhelming immune response in the body, and that overlapped into attacking the beta cells. Um, and you know the reality is is that we don't know what that normal trigger is. You know, we've always assumed it was viral infections. Uh, and maybe this is just another one of those viruses that in some people it will trigger right. a response against the, the beta cell. But nobody has solved that problem exactly at this time. Fair. I read somewhere that, or someone said somewhere in a, something that I read, that in 10 years time or less, that one out of every three people they believe will have some form of diabetes. Does that sound accurate or is that somebody taking a wild no, guess? No, that, that's accurate when you include type 2 diabetes. Fair. Um, so most of that increases in type 2 diabetes. And although my world is focused on type 1 diabetes, uh, the reality is, is that the older our population gets, the more likely people are to get type 2 diabetes. Okay. I mean, I remember my dad got type 2 diabetes when he was 70. And I'm thinking, how could you get type 2 diabetes? You're a skinny old guy. But it's just age. Mm -hmm. So eventually, as time wears on, our pancreas is not able to function as well as it did. And so type 2 diabetes is also a, a diabetes of old age, not always just obesity. So in the kids, it's obesity mediated. In the adults, it's sort of age mediated. Right. Can you get type 1 diabetes at any age now? It's not a, it's not, it used to be called, I think, juvenile diabetes, yeah. but I don't think that's accurate, correct? That's correct. Um it is absolutely true that the vast majority of people who develop type 1 diabetes develop it when they're young. Um, but you still can get autoimmune destruction of the islet cells when you're older. And, you know, we sort of have this arbitrary cutoff of 40 um, that if, you know, if, if you get autoimmune diabetes before the age of 40, it's called type 1 or autoimmune diabetes. And if you get it after that, then it's type 2 diabetes. But of course, the lines are blurred and you can get a low-grade autoimmune attack on your on your body mm -hmm. as an older person. And so people call that latent autoimmune diabetes of, of adulthood. Um, but it's generally not a fast and quick uh, progression. Um, you know, one of the things we didn't talk about is, you know, how long does it take a child who's completely normal from the first time their body starts attacking their beta cells till they have frank diabetes? And the answer is probably anywhere from six weeks, to six months. It's mm -hmm. a very fast uh, decline. And most of the time you don't, you get to 90% of the decline in loss of your beta cells without even knowing it. You don't get any symptoms. And then right at the end, that last time from when you start getting symptoms, you know, six weeks, it's a pretty short time. Yes, sir. So you don't have much time to notice these things and you know, take your child to the doctor and say, look, it, I've noticed we're losing weight. We're drinking more water. Mm -hmm. Let's do a test for diabetes. I think I know, well, I don't know the answer to this, but I think I know where you're going to go with this. But 
how many people do you think are walking out there in the general public that have no idea they have type two diabetes? I'm assuming type two is as much can go on much longer than type yeah. one, but how, what percentage of people it's would huge. you say? Probably, I can't remember the statistic exactly, but it's like 30 to 50% of people who have started to get type two diabetes don't know. And that's the funny thing is, is that when we see the kids with type two diabetes and you ask the right questions and you look back, you can see in retrospect, they've had signs and symptoms for up to two years. So the progression of type two diabetes is much slower, much more subtle. Mm -hmm. And so there, there are probably as many people out there who have early stage type two diabetes who don't know it as who actually do. Wow. And so, you know, this one third of all people in, in, you know, developing diabetes, that's predominantly the type two mm -hmm. problem. That's incredible. Um, Cook Children's Medical Center, as we refer to it here on the show, uh, they're a world leader in this in this department, among others. But uh, is it you guys stand at a tall, uh, on, on the Mount Olympus of the diabetes research and treatment? I believe. How did you guys get there? What's why? Did, why does Cook Children's Medical Center stand so high on this on this disease? Well, I I think there's really two ways of thinking about this. Um, what I would say is that. We provide excellent care in the diagnosis and management of type 1 diabetes. Mm -hmm. We're not working in the lab trying to develop, you know, new ways to make beta cells or figuring out new ways to do islet cell transplant. What we're doing is we're taking all the technologies that we have at our disposal and working with our kids and their families to try and give them the best shot at a healthy life from the perspective of their diabetes. So what we would say is that we are at the clinical cutting edge of the care of diabetes, not so much that we are um, leading in, in, in like basic science research and how we're going to prevent diabetes. Right. Now, you know, are we doing some of the studies to look at how do we, you know, ameliorate the, 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 the rate of progression of this new onset diabetes? Yes, we're working with industry, doing some of those studies, but not the sort of, you know, cutting edge gene therapy things. Mm -hmm. Cook Children's is a leader in clinical research rather than basic science research. Very good. One last dumb question and then we'll end with a good question. Okay, but great. I saw this question somewhere online. There's too much money. There's so, or there's so much money in the treatment of diabetes that a cure is not practical for these uh, diabetes companies. What do you say to that? I, I hear this all the time that people say, oh my God, they're making so much money on insulin. Why would they want to cure diabetes? And probably if you're a shareholder in a company that makes insulin, you don't want to cure diabetes. But luckily for us, that's not how we feel. Mm -hmm. Trust me, if I did not have to take care of 2,000 kids with diabetes, I'd be the happiest man alive. Mm -hmm. Not that I don't love you, all of the 2,000 kids out there. <laughs> But um, yes, that is a common, I think, misconception that people do not want to cure diabetes. Let me tell you that there is a huge scientific move to cure diabetes. If you look at organizations like the JDRF or the American Diabetes Association, all of their focus is on helping children and adults with diabetes have a better life, but also on curing and preventing diabetes for anyone. So yes, I think there's always going to be people who say there's too much money, but 
when you look at the amount of money being invested in preventing diabetes, it's huge. So I would say to our listeners, don't give up hope. Don't be thinking that just because XYZ company is making a lot of money on diabetes that that we don't want to cure your diabetes. We do. We're with you and everyone's working together. And this is probably one of, other than maybe cancer, one of the best invested diseases. I mean, when I look at my kids with hyperinsulinism, which is the opposite of diabetes, they make too much insulin. We're begging for the amount of research and interest in curing that condition compared to diabetes. So, yeah, no, don't give up hope. The medical profession is fighting on your behalf and there is money in curing diabetes as well. So that, you know, think about it that way. Dr. Paul Thornton, medical, uh, let's see, endocrine and diabetes program, medical director at Cook Children's Medical Center. Thank you for sharing with us this incredible, fascinating world. And thank you for the work you do for all those kids and for adults, for that matter. We appreciate you being here. I'm honored to have you in this in this studio. So uh, before we go, we ask all of our, our, our interviewees, uh, beside wife and children and family affairs, is there a best day of your whole life you could share with us? Wow. Um, you didn't tell me about that one in no, advance. We, we never do. Oh, so. uh, yeah. Gosh. Um, there's been a lot, of, a lot of things. I think the day I got into medical school was a very happy day because here's the interesting thing. I didn't actually get into medical school initially. So I was on my bike about to ride to Trinity College in Dublin to start my first day in dental school. Can you imagine how horrible that would have been? <laughs> uh, though now that I know how much money dentists earn, maybe it's not that horrible. <laughs> However, just as I was leaving, the postman came along and there was this letter and it was my admission to medical school. So that was a very exciting day. That's wonderful. Thank yeah. you for sharing that. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, you guys for watching. That's been another episode of 42 with Dr. Paul Thornton. Uh, we appreciate you. Thank you, Captex Bank, as always. Uh, appreciate you watching the show. Until next time. Roxo Media House.